betrayals have really shaped the history of the world. If you know some of the history of the world, secrets have been spread, battles have been swung, lives have been lost, wars have been won, all because of individuals at times who dared to betray their nations or their friends or their countrymen. Some of, them, some of them you may know, others you may not. They're not the type of people we like to remember, that we like to immortalize. Uh, there's Benedict Arnold, who infamously switched sides during the American Revolutionary War. Or Mir Jafar in India, who, who sided with the British invaders to help them take over India. Or Alfred Rettel, who sold Austrian secrets in World War I, which ended up costing over half a million Austrians their lives. There's the Cambridge Five. You may have heard of them. Five British men who notoriously spied for Soviet Russia. Or going way back in history, there's the story of Julius Caesar, who was betrayed to the death by his nephew Brutus. But there's probably no better known, more despicable or history-altering betrayal than the one we read about in the pages of Scripture when Judas betrayed Jesus. Today, though, I want you to notice one way that this betrayal, you probably all know the story, but the way that this betrayal of Judas stands out from all the others I've mentioned. And all these other betrayals throughout history, the betrayed people or the betrayed nation have fought back against the betrayer, right? So they go into damage control, or they try to attempt to reverse the effects of the betrayal. They definitely turn on the betrayer themselves, trying to to discredit them or arrest them, even kill them. They're trying to bring bring them to justice for treason. But in the case of Jesus and Judas, Jesus not only didn't turn on Judas or try to fight back, what's really amazing is Jesus knew this betrayal was coming. And yet, he didn't try to stop it at all. He walked willingly and intentionally right into the trap that was waiting for him. Why did he do this? Well, because it was all part of a plan. A plan that his enemies really never foresaw. And a plan that really would alter all of history far beyond any human betrayal ever has. If you have a Bible, please take it now and turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. This will be on page 882 if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. 882, that gets us to Luke 22. We're going to see Jesus being betrayed in these verses, but really betrayal was only the beginning. Jesus was about to go through far more and far worse in the upcoming hours. And he went through it all. Remember this. He went through it all in order to serve and love and forgive and save us. Hey, let's pray that we can see this today as we look to God's word together. Please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, as we open these pages and we read these words, I pray that this book really would be alive to us today. That it would be living and active, sharper than a sword. I pray that it would cut to our hearts and change our lives. That it would open our eyes to who you are, to what you require of us. Help us more than anything today, God, to see your love for us as we read this story. We ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. So in the past several weeks, we've actually only covered a few hours of time in one of Jesus' days. Okay? And a lot of what we've gone over recently plays directly in to today's story. So I'm actually going to back up a bit, and I'm going to simply read some of this story to you to catch us up. Okay, you can follow along with me if you look back to the beginning of chapter 22. You may have to flip a page or two. Luke 22 is a very long chapter. Okay, but go back to the beginning of the chapter. It just says this in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. And then we see they get help from a very unlikely source. Verse 3, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. That's the twelve disciples. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him. To them in the absence of a crowd. Over the next few verses, we see Jesus making arrangements to celebrate the traditional Passover meal with his disciples. And when they had gathered around the table, then Jesus actually instituted a tradition of his own. Skip down to verse 19. He says, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Then the mood quickly grew ominous. Verse 21, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. And so we see the disciples start quarreling, and they get in this big fight. And at some point in here, we know that Judas got up and left the meal. Then Jesus talked about true greatness, what it really meant to be great, and he promised his followers. In verse 28, he said, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Great promise. He's basically saying, one day you'll be great. But in the short term, you're going to fail. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, speaking of Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. 
Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them all, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So they grabbed their two swords and they set off for their camp on the Mount of Olives. But the battle that night wouldn't be waged with physical weapons, but with prayer. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer... He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, we see Jesus passing his intense test and the disciples failing theirs. And their lack of prayer is going to have serious repercussions In today's passage, verse 47 starts right off where we last left off. Jesus was telling them in verse 46, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. It was as if he went, rise and pray so that you don't. Too late. this big crowd of people approached from the distance, footsteps rustling, voices whispering, weapons clinking, torchlight flickering. And the disciples noticed, must have really began to stir from their slumber then, rubbing their eyes and sitting up, maybe staggering to their feet trying to squint and see who was this that was coming to them. No one came to them at this time of night. As this mob got closer, they could start making out some outfits and some faces, and mostly there were a bunch of soldiers, along with a few priests or scribes. But leading the way was someone they instantly recognized, Judas. Can you imagine the confusion in that moment, the alarm they must have felt. But I don't want you to just consider how the disciples felt here. I want you to notice what Jesus did. 
or in this case, didn't do. Like I said earlier, Jesus knew full well that his betrayal was coming. He knew exactly what Judas was up to with his appalling little plot. However, Jesus didn't flee Jerusalem. He, while he saw the torchlight, he didn't run away. He didn't tell his disciples, hey, we're not safe here. Let's get out of here. Neither did Jesus tell his disciples to arm themselves, to get their swords ready. Any other person, I think, in this situation would have thought, okay, we got two options. Our options are, are fight or flight, right? Got to fight or we got to fight. But he didn't flee and he didn't fight. Finally, notice Jesus' emotional state in this moment. He didn't freak out. He didn't panic. Jesus seems to be now resolutely and calmly facing his fate. Now this all leads me to the first powerful truth about Jesus I believe we see from this story. And that is this, that Jesus willingly accepted being betrayed. Jesus willingly accepted being betrayed. Betrayed. He willingly did this because, as we saw last week, he knew it was God's will for him. He just prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Now it was being done. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? A kiss. Has there ever been a more despicable use for a kiss? (laughs) Kisses are supposed to be beautiful, meaningful, filled with love. Who was the last person that you kissed? Maybe a spouse or a significant other, one of your children, maybe one of your parents. Why'd you kiss them? Pretty easy, right? You're trying to show them that you love them by kissing them. I kiss my wife every day that I leave for work and when I come home every day. I look forward to the day that that just weirds my kids out and makes them squirm. But I also kiss my kids every night when they go to bed. I want to make sure that they know, I want my family to know that I love them and I care for them. In Jesus' day, kisses were a common form of greeting between family members and close friends. If you're French, uh, if you're Filipino, you may still do this. Many other cultures still do this as a form of greeting. Some of you got multiple kisses, right? However, in this situation... Judas's kiss was not meant to show affection or even friendly greeting. It was a signal that Judas had prearranged with this crowd of soldiers so they know who to arrest when they got there. He's like, listen, guys, it's going to be dark. You might not recognize Jesus' face that easily, so I'm going to make it easy for you. Yeah, I'm just going to go up. First person I kiss as a greeting, you know what to do. kiss was used for deception in order to disguise Judas's true intentions. It's despicable, disgraceful, dreadful. 
This was a true kiss of death. So Judas slithered up to to Jesus like the serpent that possessed him, looking to kiss him. And Jesus asked, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Can you hear the sadness as Jesus says that in his voice? Like, like, really, Judas? This is how you chose to betray me? He may have even been asking, are you sure that you want to go through with this? So to the very end, Jesus sought to keep Judas from utter ruin, but to no avail. This should have been a heavily convicting question he asked Judas, a reproach. But we see no hesitation on Judas's part as he completed what he set out to do and leaned in and kissed Jesus. Now, don't underestimate the emotional pain this must have caused Jesus. We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, how much betrayal can hurt us. When someone you think that you know or you even love turns on you, it seems to injure your very soul. It shakes you up. It causes deep, deep pain. Most of us have never even experienced anything like this. But consider how much Jesus had already done for Judas. He, he had called Judas as his own disciple. He had identified him as his friend for years now. They'd been together. He would probably baptized him back in the day and mentored him and trained him. He had empowered him for ministry and sent him out with the other 12 disciples to preach the gospel, to heal people, to proclaim the kingdom. He'd shown him his miraculous power time and time again. And just that day that we just read about, Jesus had broken bread with Judas. He'd fellowshiped with him, washed his feet, served him. There's no question that Jesus considered Judas his friend. And yet, Judas turned on. We don't know much of his motives, except it seems like a love of money caused him to sell out his Lord. Michael Card wrote a song back in the 80s about these scenes in Jesus' life called Why. And he asked, why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. And then he answers, only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. This would have been emotionally agonizing. Betrayal was absolutely part of Jesus' suffering. And today, remember this, he went through betrayal for us. He was betrayed because he loved us. This is actually the last time Judas appears in Luke. At this point, he kind of slinks into the background. But Jesus' suffering was only beginning. 
And as we continue today, we're going to see two more aspects of Jesus' suffering revealed. The next one took place even as they were still standing there in Gethsemane on this night. And that is this, that Jesus innocently allowed being apprehended. Even though he was innocent, Jesus allowed himself to be apprehended or arrested by this mob. Let's read how Jesus' arrest unfolded. In verse 49, says, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, that's speaking of his disciples, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away. So do you get what happened here? The disciples finally clue into what's going on. Remember, they just woke up, probably a bit groggy. And when Jesus flat out asked Judas if he was betraying him, everything started to make sense. started to come together in their minds. They're awake now. And they started to panic a bit. It said in verse 49, And when those who were around him saw that what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They're looking around worriedly like, Lord... This small army is here for you. Should we fight back? However, they didn't even wait to hear an answer from Jesus. One of them thought, well, no wonder Jesus told us to bring swords. And as he whipped one out... (laughs) Sorry. It's in my office. I had to use it. But he whips the sword out. He stumbles forward, and he ends up cutting off the ear of one of the people there. Three guesses as to who that was. Yeah, Peter, right? (laughs) Impetuous Peter whipped out his sword and attacked David Gooding says that Peter attacked with poor aim, but stout intention. Sounds like the story of his life. And he took off some poor fellow's ear. It's actually rather gruesome if you think of the scene. But Peter and the others had totally misunderstood Jesus. He, he didn't tell them to bring swords in order to fight for him, or even to defend himself. So Jesus quickly put a stop to what could have easily turned into a little massacre. He said, no more of this, in verse 51, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. In Jesus' words, there is a message for the church, I believe. That we should never seek to defend our faith with any kind of violence. We should also never seek to extend the kingdom with any kind of violence. Even when persecution's on the rise, even when all hope might seem lost, fighting back is not a valid last resort. We're to love our enemies like Jesus did. And we can see this love even here 
in his final miracle before his resurrection. Do you notice it? Kind of breezed by it. And he touched his ear and healed him. In an instant, Jesus picked up this ear, held it back to the probably screaming man's head, and not only reattached it miraculously, but healed it instantly. Re-knitting together the, the blood vessels and the nerves and the cartilage and the hearing functions. It seems simple, but I mean, Luke barely mentions it, but this miracle was super impressive. And it was quite important as well in the storyline. It actually it protected Jesus from accusations that he was running some zealot operation. It, it showed everyone that he wasn't there to do people harm. He never intended harm. He was there to love. It ended any attempt to hinder his journey to the cross. It was like he was saying, no, don't try to stop God's will from happening. This is what God wants. And it gave one final sign that Jesus was who he said he was. The Son of God. Which gave the leaders and soldiers one final opportunity to relent and to believe. Yet even in the face of this super impressive little miracle, they rejected it. Verse 52, Jesus asked another pointed, convicting question, this time to the mob. He said, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out, out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, you've had lots of of opportunities to arrest me. Why now? Why at night? Why in private? Is this the way to apprehend a peaceful teacher? He was questioning their methods, and and they rightfully should have felt convicted by this, because by his words, by his miracle, by his restraining his disciples, by his actions, even in that moment, he showed that he truly was an innocent man, a peaceful man, who wouldn't fight back. There was no good reason to arrest him, so they had to resort to stealth and treachery. But even though Jesus questioned them, he knew they had to arrest him. You see that he says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Then he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, the hour of darkness. This was the time when darkness would reign. The hour of the power of darkness. Since he had indwelt Judas, this means that the devil himself was actually part of the mob that night. Satan was right there, likely with his own horde of murderous demons behind him. It was their hour. And it would stay their hour all the way until the cross. When Jesus would take his last breaths, And the demons would rejoice, thinking they'd won. 
but the powers of darkness stood no chance against the power and the plan of God. The only reason they had an hour at all was because God allowed it. Philip Ryken says, even the dark hour that seemed to be under Satan's power was really God's hour. The very act that Jesus told the forces of darkness, which hour was theirs, showed that he was Lord of that hour and every hour. Jesus was purposely, he was already purposely marching towards the cross when the devil decided to drag him there. Satan had no idea that he was just a pawn in God's sovereign plan of salvation. And because darkness had its hour, light would have its hour for the rest of time. This, this things got really dark. Jesus would not only be tried and convicted and mocked and tortured, he would really die. But right when the hour of darkness got the darkest, light streamed forth from the tomb. And our freedom would be won. And our sins would be forgiven. And our eternal life would be secured. And the powers of darkness would be forever subjugated under Christ's feet. Because Jesus went through this hour of darkness, we can now live in the light. So has your life been flooded with his light yet? Have you been given new life, salvation in Jesus' name? If you're still living in darkness today and you haven't come to Christ yet, then I have to tell you this morning, believe in Christ Jesus. Repent of your sins. Run to the light of the world in Jesus. You need this more than I could ever describe to you. Be happy to help guide you doing this after the service today. We all need Jesus. This is why we rejoice this morning that someone this week gave their life to the Lord and light flooded his life. We all need Jesus. The other thing this passage should do is encourage us through our own dark seasons of life. Right at the hours or the days or weeks or months that seem darkest to us, right at that time, whether because of death or sickness or, or disease or loss, depression, oppression, whatever the case may be, we can rest assured that God is still in control and he still has a plan. The fact that Jesus had power over the powers of darkness should give us hope to trust him with our own lives, with our futures. If he was sovereign over these, the darkest hours in history, he is surely sovereign over our lives. So in his sovereign love, Jesus allowed himself to be apprehended by the real criminals here. Right after he said it was their hour, they grabbed him. Verse 54 says, then they seized him 
and led him away. This was the boundless Son of Man bound. The unrestrainable God restrained. This was a perfectly sinless, innocent man being dragged off like a guilty criminal. And he allowed all this to happen because in his love, he wanted to save sinners like us. For today, we're not going to see much of what took place with Jesus after this as he goes off to the high priest's house and says, they seized him, led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Instead of another of Jesus' disciples is going to take center stage. Peter, we've already seen a lot of today, Peter is one of Jesus' closest disciples who Jesus had sent off to help prepare the Passover meal. And then we read how Jesus even talks to Peter at this table of the Lord's table and he warns him about his impending denials. And finally, we see Peter in the garden as the one who just cut off this guy's ear in Gethsemane. But after being rebuked by Jesus, Peter didn't run away like most of the other disciples did. Peter may have been embarrassed, may have been confused, may have been worried, but at least he followed Jesus. As, as Jesus was marched off, Peter followed them. Then they seized him, led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, and we see the end of verse 54, and Peter was following at a distance. He's following Jesus. But unfortunately, that's about the only good thing Peter did. Verse 55, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with them, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out. And wept bitterly. Now this part of the story focuses on Peter. But I think Luke is still telling the broader story of Jesus here. So what does Peter's failure tell us about Jesus? I believe it shows still another aspect of his suffering. And that is that Jesus sorrowfully experienced being denied. Jesus sorrowfully experienced being denied. I think we can sense Jesus' sorrow as he experienced being denied by Peter. You know that moment you recognize someone and you think that you know them, but you're not exactly sure how, and maybe you don't remember their name, where you know them from? It happens to me a fair amount. There was this one time recently at the grocery store where this guy came up to me and talked to me and obviously knew who I was. And 
I recognized him. I, I thought I knew him. But he was talking to me as if we were long-lost best friends. And I couldn't place him for the life of me. I was too embarrassed to ask his name because he seemed to know me so well. So I kind of just said hi, had a nice little conversation, and then went on my way. It bugged me for months trying to figure out who this guy was and how I knew him. I eventually figured it out how I, how I knew him. But have you had that feeling of recognizing someone, not knowing, and, and then figuring it out later? I think we have some of those moments of recognition here in Luke. The crowd, we see accompanying Jesus, dispersed as they reach the high priest's home in Jerusalem. But then some of them stuck around in the courtyard, the large courtyard there, and decided to build a bonfire. Okay? Uh, once the fire was blazing, they all gathered around it to, to keep warm, probably a chilly night in Jerusalem. Peter was there, we see that. He's tried to inconspicuously blend in. But that didn't work too well. See one servant girl see him and thinks, boy, he looks familiar. Where do I know him from? And then it hit her. I know. I saw him at the temple with Jesus. When Jesus was teaching, he was standing there right next to Jesus. This Jesus who just passed through here as a prisoner said, when they, were, when they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. It turns out the fire would illuminate more than Peter's face. It illuminated his heart. Now, if you were Peter, what do you think would be going through your mind at that moment? Panic, right? Oh, no. They can't know that I'm with Jesus. Because his life is in danger. And if, if they knew I was with Jesus, my life would be in grave danger, too. So he panicked, and he blurts out a total lie. In verse 57, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Not only did he deny being with Jesus, he denied even knowing Jesus. Now, his fear for his life may have been quite the valid fear, but it didn't excuse denial. He had just promised, we read the verses earlier, that he would follow Jesus to prison and death. Another lie. When standing up for Jesus actually meant something, he couldn't do it. And sadly, it didn't end with just one denial. This wasn't just simple panic or a slip of the tongue. A little bit later, another person recognized him in verse 58. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And then another person noticed that he was a Galilean like Jesus. And after an interval about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. The circumstantial evidence was building up. It was too much. Matthew says in his gospel that Peter's accent is what gave him away. And one final time, Peter swore he didn't even know about Jesus, But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And then right at that very moment, 
a rooster crow. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Remember, Jesus had prophesied Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, basically saying, you'll deny me three times before the rooster announces that it's morning. What a feeling, though, must have washed over Peter as he finished denying Jesus and this audible cock-a-doodle-doo rings out across the courtyard. His heart must have sank. And then a third thing happened in those few seconds. Verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So, wherever they were, Peter could see Jesus from where he was. And Jesus knew, obviously, what was happening at that time. And right as Peter denied, and right as the rooster crowed, Jesus shot Peter a searching glance. What an unbelievable moment. Can you imagine Jesus just turning and looking straight at Peter? What do you think Jesus looked communicated to Peter? Judgment? Highly doubtful. They'll talk about instant conviction, right? This was not a, ta- a haughty, I told you so, but it probably was likely a, a sorrowful, see? I can only imagine Jesus' eyes welling up with tears as he saw one of his closest friends fall. Even when Jesus' own sufferings had begun, we know from elsewhere that his his torture had already started, his mockery and beatings had already started, but right in that moment, when his sufferings had already begun, his heart went out to Peter. Compassion. And love. And sorrow. That one glance reminded Peter of what Jesus had predicted. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. It stopped him in his track. Oh, no. What have I done? Verse 62 is the most heart-wrenching verse. He went out and wept bitterly. Fled the scene and broke down. As the message puts this verse, he went out and cried and cried and cried. Now, we don't see much of any of the aftermath of either Judas's or Peter's betrayal here. See some of it later on, but not much here. But there's something important to point out between in the differences between their responses. We know from elsewhere that Judas also was heartbroken after his betrayal. But Judas and Peter vividly illustrate the difference between remorse and repentance. They both had regret. They both shed lots of tears. But only one repented. 
Judas' remorse never changed his life. He was sorry, but he wasn't saved. Peter's remorse led to a total life change and a life of obedience. He repented. There was a difference in how they responded. And we see later, Paul talks about this, how godly sorrow, there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, and godly sorrow, the difference is it always leads to repentance. Always leads to repentance. It always leads to us leaving our sins behind. Judas never did. And he ended up tragically committing suicide. Peter did. Think about how God went on to use Peter in the years ahead. Even mere weeks later, see Peter boldly preaching salvation in Jesus' name in the streets of Jerusalem. Total life change. Transformed. That's true repentance. When we come to Christ, we must be more than sorry for our sins. We must abandon them. When we read a, a straight narrative story like this about Jesus and his disciples, it can be sometimes difficult to know what we should take away from it, how we should apply it to our lives. Yes, we need to be reminded of these things, absolutely. We need to be reminded of how Jesus suffered through betrayal and arrest and denial. But what does this actually mean to us? How should it change our lives? I want you to leave you with three quick ways that I believe this passage can directly speak to us. Okay? First, I think this passage should be a sober warning to us. Okay? And the warning is we need to be warned, don't do these things. Okay? We need to be warned to not do these things. Judas betrayed Jesus. The mob arrested Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. And each one of them serve as a cautionary tale for us. Remember, Jesus was betrayed by someone he loved. Okay? Judas was his friend. He was arrested by those he warned multiple times. And he was denied by someone he saved. If Peter was susceptible, all of us are. And we should hear a permanent and powerful warning when we read these words. Just because we think we're close to Jesus doesn't eliminate the possibility of terrible sin. Okay? People in the church, presumed Christians, Christian leaders, we're all vulnerable. And we need to pray desperately that God will protect us from succumbing to temptation. Most of us can affirm our faith very easily today. This morning you would stand up and say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ in the comfort of a free country amongst the approval of, a, of Christian friends and the joys of a healthy church, it's easy to do. But if the going got tough, would your faith stand strong? Don't presume that you'll never fall. Pray. We saw that lesson last, last week in the garden. Hear the warning, heed it. But beyond mere warning, we also need to admit something. That is, we need to be honest. We've done these things. 
We need to be honest with ourselves and, and with God. We have all done things like these. There's a bit of a betrayer in all of us. There's a bit of the mob. There's a bit of the denier. We betray Jesus when, when we put other things above him in our priorities. When we have a divided heart. And when, we put our, when we pursue money or fame or status over him, more than him. When we subconsciously worship our jobs or our families or our recreational activities. When we pour all of our money and time and energy into something that's not him. It's not about his kingdom. We betray him. You know, we might try to restrain Jesus when we say, Jesus, you can have this much of me, but no more. You can have my Sundays. Yeah, you can have uh, maybe even up to half an hour every morning. You can have 10%. You can have this much time, this much energy, but don't start invading my fill in the blank. Don't start invading my sports, my school, my free time, my entertainment choices, the movies I watch, or TV shows, or the books. Don't invade my partying. Don't invade my addictions. Don't go there, Jesus. Try to restrain him. And then we deny Jesus when we refuse to speak of him with those we know that need him. When we're too scared of what it might cost us to speak up. When we ignore a friend or a family member's soul because we want them to like us. When we're too ashamed of the gospel to let other people know what we actually believe. If we believe him. We deny him. We need to come to grips with how divided and dirty our hearts actually are. If we truly realized the depths of our depravity, we'd all weep like Peter did here. There's, here's the final crazy thing that this passage communicates to us. That's that Jesus loves us anyway. Despite the betrayal, despite the arrest, despite the denials, Jesus was still willingly and intentionally on his way to die for despicable sinners. And therefore, we need to be reminded, Jesus died for these things. Well, don't forget this truth, or the rest of them can make you despair. Jesus died for these things. The story doesn't end here. But even in this story, we see the hints of it. He reached out to Judas, even at the very last minute. Are you sure you want to do this? You want to go through? Then he looked to the mob, and, and they were unjustly seizing him, and he, yet he revealed his power to them one last time. Asked them, is this how you want to do this? And then he looked back to Peter with sorrow and love 
in the midst of his own suffering, he might as well have been saying, I love you, Peter. I'm doing this for you. He knows our weaknesses. Makes plans to restore us. Even when it meant dying for us. May we run to him today. May we be unceasingly thankful. May we praise his name forever. Because even when we are the biggest failures around... There is grace. I I read a story recently that illustrated this point about the young Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae, uh, who recently made it so big that he had the number one musical album in all of North America. This is unheard of unparalleled success for a Christian artist, especially one in the hip-hop genre. Very successful, but it turns out that Lecrae's personal testimony, his personal history, had a deep, dark secret. In his early days as a believer, he had been involved in a sexual relationship with his girlfriend. And after he got her pregnant, he ended up driving her to the abortion clinic, pushing her to do it, encouraging her to do it. And, And therefore, he ended up as an accomplice in the murder of his own innocent child. Uh, As you can imagine, he lived with guilt and shame for years before he finally went and he confessed his sin to those he loved. He had to fight the natural tendency that we all have, the default response to try to hide our sin, to cover up our sin, to keep it secret. And his healing process began as he sought God's forgiveness for the horrible mistakes he had made. More recently, he opened up about his sin publicly. He confessed it to the world. He even talked about in the lyrics of his best-selling album. Talks about falling in this way. And as the story I, I read about him says, Lecrae wants to spread the message now that openness with sin and confidence in the forgiving power of Christ brings eternal healing from the deepest stains of guilt. Personal restoration is possible, and Lecrae is a living testimony. By God's grace, he was willing to face his sin honestly and openly, to weep and confess, and to draw near the blood of Christ. Recently, he sat down to discuss his past with Pastor John Piper. And John Piper said something very powerful to him as he's hearing this story come out and talking to him. He said, the gospel teaches us how to live, but it also rescues us when we fail to live the way we are supposed to. That's the good news about Jesus. Not only does he teach us how to live, but praise God, he rescues us when we fail to live the way we're supposed to. There's grace even there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know that we need 
you to rescue us. We have all betrayed you. We have all tried to restrain you. We have all denied you. We need your grace. Please pour it out on us today. We know you did so at the cross. Thank you for dying for us, for forgiving us, for freeing us, for restoring us, even when we thought all hope was gone. Please save us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.